Hey everybody, welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. It's March and that means it's Women's History Month, at least in the United States. So I'm continuing to feature women scientists on the podcast all month long. I thought I would start off with a little history about women in STEM. We women have a way of persisting, and despite continuing to face barriers to professional advancement, we just won't stop. What lengths have we gone to? Well, like Rosalind of Shakespeare's As You Like It, who disguised herself as a young man in an effort to travel through the forest without fear of harm, women have altered their appearance and behavior throughout history to succeed in STEM fields dominated by men. While some, like military surgeon James Barry, whose real name was Margaret Ann Bulkley, went to extraordinary measures that lasted a lifetime, others, like Jean Beret, disguised herself as a man to get on board a scientific expedition well before Darwin ever set foot on the Beagle. It would take until 1959 before women, presented as women, were even permitted on scientific expeditions. Fast forward to today when my guest, Dr. Leela Schlenker, spends most of her time asking if she can come aboard. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. Dr. Lila Schlenker is a marine scientist with a fascinating background. She is currently a visiting assistant professor at the Williams Mystic Program. This is a really special program run by Williams College in collaboration with Mystic Seaport. It's an important program to Dr. Schlenker, and you'll find out why later in the episode. Before we get to it, a quick shout out to the American Geophysical Union for their support of Wild Connection and the Women in Science series through their Sharing Science grant. All right, let's talk to Dr. Schlenker about her groundbreaking research on how oil spills and climate change are affecting some of the species that live in our oceans. All right, everybody, I am so excited to welcome another fantastic uh, woman in science, Dr. Lila Schlenker. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to get to talk to you. Me too. And, you know, I found you because I was looking for incredible women in, in science. Oh. Um, in, in North Carolina, I was heading to North Carolina and I got this grant from the American Geophysical Union to um, highlight women in science. And I found you and I was like, I have to talk to this person because she's doing such incredible work. And your focus is in marine sciences sort of broadly, but... Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I got that right. And so, (laughs) um, you know, but before we kind of dig into some of your work and and the the details of what some of the questions you've been asking, I'd love for listeners to learn a little bit about how you came to even get involved in marine sciences and what drew you there. Sure. Yeah. So I was, I guess I, when I started college, I just knew that I liked the environment. I didn't really know a whole lot more than that. Um, I kind of, I grew up in a pretty rural spot in New Hampshire. So we were like out in the woods a lot, but yeah, I, I ended up my junior year of college doing a pretty neat program called the Williams mystic program. Um, it's in Connecticut. It's a maritime studies program run by Williams college and the mystic seaport. Uh, and I, was taking a marine ecology class, marine policy, marine history, literature. And for my marine, po- my sorry, my marine ecology class, um, I got to design a research project. So a friend and I teamed up um, and we just decided that we really wanted to get to experience what it was like to be on a commercial fishing boat. So luckily we had a supportive professor who was like, sure, let's think of a project you can you can do and, and see if you can find someone who's willing 
to let you kind of go out on their boat. So, um, you know, we came up with a project where we were sampling stomach contents from fish caught out of a caught out of a fishing trawl. But I just really had this kind of, I think, probably a rare moment of having one of those kind of like light bulb, you know, things where you're just like, is this a job? I want to do this. I like, I had never been on a commercial fishing boat, but it was like, you know, talking to these guys who kind of gave us this, you know, their perspective as, um, you know, Portuguese Americans fishing in like the last commercial fishing fleet in Connecticut um, and sort of the history that had been passed down and the knowledge that they had. Um, and then we're just seeing all these amazing creatures come up in this net that, you know, we stuff we had never seen before. Like we caught a torpedo ray, um, which actually electrocuted me. Um, <laughs> so it was very like hands-on, like you're on the back of this boat, you're taking these samples. And this was like, I had never, you know, I hadn't worked in a lab before I hadn't, like, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but we just, you know, we were like, okay, we're decided we're going to take the stomachs out of these fish and put them in these, you know, bags of ethanol and bring them back to the lab. And so it was really just like this immersive experience that kind of like from then on, I was just like, okay, anything a little fishy, I'm gonna, you know, if there's an internship or a job, I'm just gonna like try and get it and then we'll see what happens. So I kind of just kept from that point, sort of going from experience to experience and, you know, kind of each thing led me to some new job or, or internship. And yeah, here, here I am now. Oh my God. Okay. There's so much to say about this. So first of all, I, you know, I don't even know how you decide. Yeah. I feel like going on a commercial fishing boat seems like it's like a good idea, you know? And is that because you really liked being on the water? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even know if before that semester I'd necessarily spent that much time on boats, but, um, I mean, we had like a canoe, you know, that we would take out as a family growing up. We would go to Maine. So I know I was like familiar with, you know, commercial lobstering. Um, I remember at one point seeing one of those giant bluefin tuna being brought into the docks. And um, that was a super cool experience. But I don't think I think there's just always been something about like I learn by doing things, working with my hands. Um like my dad's a builder. So like, that just kind of means a lot to me to be able to like touch and hold on to things and see them with my own eyes. That's how I learned best. So I think that's part of what it was, was I was just like, I want to get out on one of these boats and talk to people that do this and see what it's about. Okay. You know, so very different experience than me. So I, I grew up in South Florida, surrounded by boats and mm -hmm. I, I no longer go on boats if at all possible. I was on two boats that sunk. I got thrown off another boat. And wow. the one cruise I went on, we were locked down for three days. And I've had <laughs> I've had even a famous coral reef biologist say, Yeah, you should probably check with me before you ever get on a boat and go on the water. Like your decision making is pretty poor. <laughs> And I have not been electrocuted by um, a ray. What was the name of the ray again? A torpedo ray, yeah. A torpedo ray. But I have been um, chased by a barracuda, bitten by wow. fish, um, stung by Portuguese man of war, wow. uh, even clamped on by a crab. So really <laughs> being anywhere near where the land meets the water is still a risky, <laughs> I feel like I'm risking stuff, <laughs> you know? So, so I admire that, that your thoughts were, let me get on a, on a commercial fishing boat, but I love that you got to have that experience and that you had a supportive professor and, you know, I, how did it turn? So what happened after this program? And now that you knew anything fishy, yeah. you, were, you were interested in, where did you go next? So I think, let's see, after that, I, that next summer I had an internship with NOAA Northwest Fisheries. And so that was like, we were looking at, um, how dam removal impacted, um, cutthroat trout, um, and maybe one other salmonid species. And so there was like, we were doing some pit tagging. I mean, we were the interns, so we were doing, you know, whatever they told us to, we were doing like gastric lavage of these fish where you kind of like, uh, sort of 
pump a little bit of water into their stomach to look at their diet contents in a non-lethal way. So you can basically see what they're eating without, without um, harming them. So we would look at, you know, what bugs they were eating at, under the microscope. We were snorkeling in the rivers, doing fish counts. Um, and then let's see. So then after I graduated, I ended up going to the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in Edgewater, Maryland, again, for another internship. And that was like, I was part of the crab lab. And so we were looking at blue crab movements, um, sampling fish throughout Chesapeake Bay, just like really hands-on, lots of field work. And then that, at that, when that ended, I was basically at this point where I was like, okay, I've graduated college. My paid internship has ended. Now, what do I do? I have no idea. Um, so I decided to move to Boston because a lot of my friends from college were, were living there. Um, I ended up getting an unpaid internship at the Boston Aquarium. And so I was like being, I was a nanny three days a week so that I could pay my rent and buy groceries. <laughs> and then like two or three days a week, I was at the aquarium. Um, and I, I got to help out with some really cool studies. So I got to go out again on commercial trawlers out of Gloucester, Massachusetts, um, and had some really fun experiences there. Um, so we were looking at how little skates are impacted by being caught as bycatch. So they, you know, they get these big nets come up and there's all kinds of species that are not necessarily the target species. And so they typically, a lot of them just get thrown overboard, you know, after processing, but we were sort of trying to figure out what the survival was like for those, for those skates that just kind of, you know, they may sit on deck for quite a while before they're tossed over. They've been drug along in the net, um, for a couple hours sometimes. So that was a pretty neat experience. Um, and that led to me getting a job <laughs> down in, down in Alabama as a research technician, um, at the Dolphin Island Sea Lab. So there I was running the vertical longline survey for reef fish, red snapper, trigger fish. Um, that was right after Deepwater Horizon had happened. So I got to see firsthand some of the impacts of the oil spill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I don't know how much of a list you want me to give you. But no, we're going I mean, this down is here. awesome. I mean, okay. because what I, what I also know and what listeners don't know is like some of this stuff has really directly fed some of your research questions yep. when you, when you, you know, got into your PhD and beyond. And yep. so, and so this is where, you know, I feel like uh, sometimes, right, our life experiences, we don't know how they connect. And then, you know, sometime just down the line, you you get this idea and it's because you've drawn from all of these experiences. You know, so so when did you finally end up deciding, oh, I should be a scientist and go to grad school? Like, how did that? Because when I was growing up, nobody told me scientists was like a thing. And it's right. certainly not a thing that, that I could be that was never discussed. I just kept doing like you things that I liked. I trying to figure out well, what do I want to do? I, I know if it has fur on it and it does stuff, I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was sort of following the animal behavior part. And of course I went like, Oh, should I be a vet? Like that's what girls get told. Like if you want to do animals, you're a vet. And I had, yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of fainting goats. Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, that's like me in a vet's office. <laughs> there were a few episodes and I was encouraged to rethink my career choice as a veterinarian, which I did. And then it was like, well, I took an unpaid internship at a zoo and I waited tables so that I could buy groceries. And I turned out I really didn't like working in a zoo. And, and then I did a eight year volunteer unpaid internship um, with great apes. And, and that's when I realized, oh, I just like watching animals. Is that like a thing? Do people do that? And so I read a lot of books where people were out studying animals and their behavior and what they were doing. And that's when I realized, oh, okay, I got to go to grad school. Like that's you know, yeah. and I, I did other stuff. I volunteered um, in the Everglades and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I volunteered at national parks here in, in Florida just to see, do I like to go out and like count alligators? Like, right. do I like to count birds. Meh, it's okay. It's fine. But I don't really like, 
it's not my jam. And so, yeah. So, so when did you go, get the aha moment that, okay, I got, I'm going to go to grad school because I want to like ask questions and figure some things out. Yeah. I mean, in part, like it was like all of these different, you know, technician position internships. I was working a lot with graduate students. So I was getting to see the graduate students got to do some pretty cool stuff. And I also was talking to other people that were like at the technician level with either maybe an undergrad degree or a master's degree. And like, to be completely honest, like one of the things I think that kind of pushed me to go to grad school was seeing, um, you know, not now that I'm on the other side of it, it's like actually not that much different, but like, I saw this technician who'd been with the lab for like a ton of years and was really skilled. You know, they were just like, well, you know, this grant, we didn't get it. Like, so we might, you know, we, you might be out of work, like in a couple months, like we're going to try and get more funding, but no guarantees. And that was kind of like, I was like, oh my gosh, like you can't, you don't like, even if you're really good at what you do and you get this job, like that's not necessarily secure. Um, so maybe I should, you know, go to grad school, but mostly it was like seeing what the grad students were doing and working with them and just kind of thinking like, wow, they get to like go and like work on their own projects and, you know, zoom around in boats and, um, kind of be independent. So it took me, I think I sort of like half-heartedly tried to apply one year and was kind of like, I, mm, this is hard. I'm not ready for this. Um, and so, yeah, when I was down in Alabama, I sort of, you know, went after it in earnest, um, and ended up uh, at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science in Gloucester Point. Um, and I was pretty interested, I think, from some of the work that I did when I was at the Boston Aquarium, thinking about like bycatch and what happens to, to fish after we let them go. Um, and so that kind of morphed into my master's thesis, which was really trying to understand what happens to billfish after we catch and release them, because they're in the United States primarily sport fish, you know, there's only a f just, just a few are allowed to be harvested each year. They're not really a, a food fish in this country. So I used a combination of, of physiological assays, uh, from, from blood that I collected blood samples, non-lethally and electronic tags to look at how white Marlin, you know, how stressed they are after kind of recreational angling and then what happens to them after they're released. So, um, yeah, that was, that was, a, and that was again, like kind of, um, I think sort of like throughout, so far throughout my career, it's really been a theme where I just try and go down to the docks and ask if, you know, Hey, I'm a scientist, I'm doing this. Is anyone willing to let me go out on their boat? So that's, <laughs> um, you know, effective sometimes. <laughs> so right. I was going out on these recreational, um, charter boats, fishing for billfish and just kind of like hanging out, trying to help you know, help out the mates on the boat. And then if we caught a white Marlin, you know, they were willing to let me take my samples, um, tag the fish before letting them go. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of follow-up questions here. On, mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> when you say billfish, is that also like swordfish? Yeah. So, um, like, what is a bill? I mean, I like those are those big ones with the long beak, you know, beak or bill, exactly. I guess a bill. Yeah. So in the Atlantic, um, we've got, you know, white Marlin, blue Marlin, sailfish, um, ground scale spearfish. I think there's another spearfish that I'm forgetting now, a uh, short bill or long bill, one of those, um, and then swordfish. Yeah. So swordfish are in a different sort of, they're re related, but not quite as closely as the other, other billfish are to each other. The, the Marlin essentially. Okay. Well, yeah. and you know, and so, so some of the things you're bringing up are super important, you know, like bycatch where, you know, what, what we see in the supermarket or at the restaurant that's being served doesn't reflect everything that's actually caught. And, 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 and maybe people are familiar with, you know, dolphins getting accidentally tangled up or sea turtles, but what they don't realize is there's millions of other fish that get, you know, and, and other types of marine organisms that get swept up. Um, but, you know, it's funny you're talking about the stress of being caught and then let go because, you know, personally, I've always thought like that's really got to suck. Like for like it's just got to be difficult physiologically because what you really what's really happening from the fish fish's perspective, it doesn't know it's going to be let go. 
And, you know, when when you think about your own sort of life and death fight or flight moments, um, this takes a huge toll physiologically. And yeah. and so it can affect reproduction. It can, you know, especially if it's repeated. And I don't know how often, like maybe, you know, like how often does a Marlin get caught more than once and go through, you know, like, is it just like fall for it more than once. Um, so, so what can you, what did you find out about the impact of being caught and released? Um, because I know a lot of people think, well, but you let them go. So it's totally fine. And, and then how did you tag, like what kind of tags do you use on Marlin and, and, and what kind of information do you even get about where they go? Yeah. So these were, um, pop-up satellite archival tags. So they're these like, you know, it's basically like a tiny computer in a tag that you attach to a fish um, and they collect temperature, depth um, and light data and the light data you can kind of use to figure out, um, you know, through some modeling latitude and longitude on a, you know, more or less twice, twice a day um, estimates of where these fish move. So you can get an enormous amount of data um, and they also will pop up on schedule automatically and then relay data to satellites. So they're, you know, a little bit different. There's all kinds of different configurations. Um, Some people might be familiar with like GPS tags. These are different because you don't, you don't know what happens um, until the tag pops off. So you have like, depending on how long you set it for, if it's like a month, you're waiting kind of a month anxiously to see, make sure nothing goes wrong. Sometimes people put these tags out for a year or two years even. So you're just, crossing your fingers that nothing has gone wrong in that time and that your data will show up. But it's amazing when you get to see it because you're thinking like, wow, this was a fish that I, you know, I looked it in the eye and, you know, put this tag on it, took some samples, put it back in the water. And now you get this record of what it's been doing since then. So yeah, the big findings were um, really that any kind of air exposure is extremely stressful. So really to maximize survival, like it's just really critical to keep fish in the water. The other thing that we found that that was pretty surprising was that actually a short angling time. Um, so with like a billfish marlin, you know, sometimes you catch one in, in two minutes, another time, you know, with like a big blue marlin, it could be hours depending on the fish um, how that fish behaves on the line, um, and how experienced the anglers are. Um, so if that fish like decides to go deep, they dive deep and hang out down there. That in particular really slows kind of the process down. So I actually found that those shorter fight times can be much more physiologically stressful than the longer, um, angling times, um, and kind of like the way that it makes sense to me, because I'm a runner as I think about like, you know, a sprint versus a jog. So if you're sprinting for like a minute versus, you know, you're going for a 40 minute jog, your kind of recovery looks a little bit different. Um, and in particular, if you kind of couple that with air exposure, even just like a minute of air exposure, will really have a negative impact on the survival for fish that have, um, you know, basically just done like a sprint. Okay. So what does that mean? Because for these that are just sport, they're not food fish, it's recreational, you know, how does this play into conservation? Because if you're trying to protect the species by, you know, limiting the harvest and the compromise is, okay, you get to just do it for fun, but the consequence of that is higher mortality of those fish that get caught. Is there any, you know, did your results have any impact in you know, sort of the policy level kind of decisions that are made? Well, I would say we tried, we basically, um, you know, that recreational fishing community, a lot of the fishermen are invested in the conservation of the species. So a few years before my study, there had been one that had found that um, like a J style hook, which is just kind of the shape of the hook is much more likely to cause bleeding than a circle style hook, which just has sort of a different kind of angle um, to the hook. And so really for the most part, um, the entire fleet switched over to circle hooks, um, at least within the United States. So that was one big conservation measure that people were happy to take um, and has like pretty very high levels of compliance. Um, so with my results, I kind of just tried to, you know, write some articles in like 
um, Marlin magazine, I think, and a few others that a lot of like sport fishermen will read and just really encourage people to like, cause now I think the issue with social media is that everyone wants a picture with their fish. They want to really be holding that fish up. So I tried to do sort of an outreach campaign with my advisor at the time to really just kind of spread the information that, you know, you may think you're just taking this fish out for a quick picture, but that really could have an impact on its survival. So, you know, get a GoPro, stick it in the water, lean over the side of the boat, get your picture with the fish still in the water and you're going to maximize their survival. So it wasn't like a hard policy rule, but just trying to like educate fishermen and, you know, communicate, communicate what we found. Yeah, no, I mean, we have to, because I mean, people have killed baby dolphins, passing them around, taking, you know, Instagram photos and like, you know, and, and they may not realize, even though like I might realize, you know, or you might realize that aside from it's not nice to take away a baby from its mother, um, passing it around in the air for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes can kill it, you know? Right. So, okay. Well, you know, so, so that's really incredible. And then what, I mean, so here you've done this like great study on Marlin and where did you go next? Yeah. So I finished my master's degree and I was not yet sure if I wanted to do a PhD. So, um, I actually went down to South Florida and I, um, got a job in the Everglades. I was a technician for a year. Um, so I was kind of flying in a helicopter around the Everglades, getting out, doing sampling, um, looking at the movements of like these smaller freshwater fish and invertebrates relative to kind of the water flow. Um, and you know, that has a lot of management implications for South Florida, thinking about like where that water goes in the Everglades and how much of it gets down to the Everglades. Um, but that, and that was a lot of fun. I got to work with some great people, but in part, I think it was kind of like, I think I want to do, I want to do what I want to do and not what somebody else wants, you know, is interested in. So that was kind of like, I guess I have to go and get my PhD. Okay. Um, well, and you know, getting your PhD is not trivial, but I just want to pause in the Everglades for a minute. Because sure, yeah. First of all, you're flying a helicopter around, then hopping. I'm not flying the helicopter. Okay. No. I'm right. I'm just riding in the helicopter. <laughs> okay, still. All right, you're riding around <laughs> in a helicopter, popping out and taking samples in the Everglades. Does that mean you were like in the water in the Everglades? Like, yep. Yeah. Trying really hard not to step on any alligators. Yeah, walking around in the. Um, you know, sometimes like chest deep water and there's all kinds of, um, like floating plant matter. You can't really see, um, it's really hot. There's things that bite you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I, I will never, I had someone visit uh, me once and want to go on an airboat. And I was like, no, because when I did my volunteer work, um, Loxahatchee national wildlife refuge, we went out and, and the, First part was fun. We were catching baby alligators, right? And like measuring yeah. them. And they're just really cute. Like you understand how some people's, you know, brain, cause we're wired to be like, oh, this is so cute. And, and cuddle baby things. How somebody could mistakenly think it's a good idea to have an alligator as a pet. Right. Because baby alligators are really cute. And they're just like, meh, you know? And so that was fine. But then I went out on a prescribed burn where where we were burning the sawgrass and taking the the airboats and making a line and here I am you know thinking I'm just I'm a badass here I am there's fire I'm a little bit of a pyro I (laughs) I hate to admit that publicly but oops it's out there and so here's this like wall of fire and we're cutting the line with the airboats and everything went really great until one part of the day where the boat got stuck and the fire was coming. Oh, gosh. And I was told, get out of the boat. Yeah. So as you were doing repeatedly, I only did once. I got out of the boat, chest deep in the Everglades. So you're just standing there and you're like, oh, God, please, 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 no alligators, please. And you know they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and and so I'm just, and, and I was told if the fire comes go under the water and stay there on for a while. Cause all the oxygen will be gone for a minute, you know? And, 
And so I'm just standing there and I'm like, okay, 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 it's okay, it's okay. And in, and you know, you know, if you're zipping around in a helicopter around, it all looks the same, right? So if you get lost, like you sit, you just, there's no way out. And this yeah, was yeah. 20 years ago. There were no cell phones. Yeah. There was no, like, we had a little old GPS unit and mm-hmm. I knew if the boat blew up, I'm in really big trouble. <laughs> And so the boat did not blow up, obviously, and the boat did get loose, but they left me there for a minute. Oh. <laughs> and so I had to circle around to the other boat to make sure that. So now I'm just abandoned, chest deep in the Everglades water. And that was it. I'm done. I'm done. So the fact that you repeatedly got out of a helicopter and went voluntarily into the water just is a whole level of commitment that I have to respect and admire. Well, thanks. Yeah. I will admit it was not my absolute favorite thing to do, but, um, you know, there's certain, like when you get a job like that and they put you in charge of, of this, it's like, well, I guess I better, um, I guess I better just like tough it out and deal with it because this is my job. I'm getting paid to do this. That's right. But so, but it it also allowed you to discover you did not want to keep doing that. So you wanted to get back to boats and fish in, in the ocean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it worked out really nicely. So I was living in Miami, um, wanted to stay there. Um, you know, my, my boyfriend was also down there. He, he was a PhD student. Um, and so, yeah, I, I found somebody at the university of Miami who I was like, you know, I think, I think we might be able to work pretty well together. He he's done some, some interesting stuff. Um, and kind of sent him an email and he was, you know, got back to me basically like, well, we've, you know, I don't really have any funding at the moment, but if we get this grant, um, I'll let you know. Um, and a couple months later he emailed me and was like, we got the grant, you know, come on in and, and let's meet. So, um, yeah, basically it was like, this sounds like a really interesting project. He had, he and some other, uh, professors had gotten a quite a bit of funding to look at impacts of the deep water horizon oil spill on the physiology of mahi mahi. Um, so it was, you know, it was like, there was, they had, they had the fish already. Um, they were raised in an aquaculture, um, facility right there at the university of Miami. There's also, you know, plenty of mahi mahi right off the coast of Miami. So it was, seemed like a good kind of match of like, okay, there's already funding. I know they have access to these fish that we want to work on. Um, you know, it seems like a great lab. So I went for it. Um, and it, yeah, it was like, it was a really positive, wonderful experience to work with that group and, and definitely get to tackle some interesting questions. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, you know, interesting questions and you've continued some of your work on Mahi Mahi, but, but I just kind of want to dig into the oil spill, you know, research for a minute, because there was an oil spill about a month ago in Peru. And it was so bad that the United Nations is calling it, you know, one of their, their worst disasters. Um, there's another one happening currently in Thailand. And there was another one in 2020 off the coast of California. And, and I think for many of us, you know, myself included, actually, you know, despite being a biologist, uh, you know, when I think of oil spills, we always see the commercials, you know, the Dawn commercial and all the, it's always on the coast and showing the oil spill up on the beach and, and, and estuaries and how it affects, you know, sort of the, the important breeding areas for certain species. But, but nobody really talks about the fish out in the water and how they are responding to oil in the water. Cause I think we think the ocean is just like a big giant bathtub and, you know, um, and that it doesn't, and it's so deep and it doesn't affect things out there when they happen. But, um, you know, what is, what is an oil spill do? First of all, what are mahi mahi? Where do they mm-hmm. live? And, and what, how, what does an oil spill do to that kind of fish? Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned about kind of like, we do see kind of like what's happening at the coast. Do we see like oiled, you know, pelicans and that kind of thing, um, getting, getting de-oiled by, yeah. And the Dawn commercials usually, but yeah, like Deepwater Horizon was pretty unique for a couple of reasons. One is that it was it is the deepest oil spill um, to have occurred. And so that oil was released 
under an enormous amount of pressure. And so that meant that all of those, you know, oil is actually made up of a lot of different compounds. Um, so there's all kinds of stuff in there, right? It comes out of the earth. Um, you know, there's like many, many different polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon compounds within there. There's, there's heavy metals, there's all kinds of things mixed into that. So being released under that much pressure because it was so deep meant that there was a lot of time and pressure for those different compounds to like dissolve into the, into the water column. It was also really far offshore. Um, and so that meant kind of that a lot of these open ocean species that we don't really see a lot unless we go out and, you know, we go fishing or um, something like that. We don't, we don't really know what happens to them. Um, and so that was kind of the impetus for our work with Mahi Mahi. Um, so they're an open ocean pelagic species. They are highly migratory. Um, and they have kind of this unique lifestyle where they're, we like, we like to say that they have like a live fast, die young life cycle where they, um, they pretty much mature by five, six months of age, sometimes even a little earlier. So they're reproducing, um, at that, at that age. And most of them don't live past a year. They can get up, you know, the, occasionally you see records of two, three, even a four-year-old mahi mahi. So most mahi-mahi don't make it past a year, um, but they have this just like incredibly rapid growth rate. So they're a little bit, you know, it's just like a very different set of life history characteristics than say herring in Alaska, which was kind of our reference point with the Exxon Valdez spill before, before Deepwater Horizon. So it was kind of like a big unknown of how these projects fish are gonna react. Um, and what some of these, like we, you know, we had kind of a handle on how many fish we think were killed actually, just, you know, from experiencing these like lethal, lethal levels of crude oil. But, you know, another big question was kind of trying to get into some of these like sublethal impacts. So for all the fish that did encounter some amount of crude oil, but it wasn't enough to just kill them outright. Like, what does that do? And how does that manifest in the ecosystem? And you know, we know that there's actually still a lot of oil down there at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. When we have storms and things, you know, we get oil washed up on beaches still. Um, so kind of trying to understand like, what does this mean for the whole Gulf of Mexico for these fish? For Like how, how does that like going forward? How does that manifest? Yeah. Well, and, and, and how did you, how do you get about figuring some of this out? Right. I mean, do you tag these fish and follow them and see what they do? Do you catch mm. them and see what's happening? You know, if it's in their tissues, like kind of how do you start getting at how an oil spill affects a fish like this? Yeah. So I was part of a big research group um, called recover. And basically it was like, at certain points, you know, it varied, but we had about 50 people, um, graduate students, postdocs and PIs, um, kind of working on this question. And so people were coming at it from all different angles, but we were sort of this collective unit where we said like some of the questions that we're most interested in are trying to understand, you know, physiologically and behaviorally what sublethal crude oil exposure means for marine fish and in particular mahi-mahi. Um, there were some other species that we worked on, you know, just mahi-mahi aren't always like the best lab species um, because they're, you know, they're sort of particular about their environment. They like certain things, so they're not always happy to be um, a lab fish, like certain, you know. So they're high maintenance. They're, they're, they're high maintenance. They're, like, they're divas for sure. Um, yeah, they, we used to say that like, if you look at them wrong, they'll just die just to spite you. Um, so they're, like, they're a little tricky, but um, yeah. So like we had this whole group. And so some people were like digging into like gene expression and other people were saying like, I want to look at predator prey interactions and how oil exposure might affect that. Um, we had a lot of people focused on cardiac physiology because we know that one of the big impacts of crude oil exposure is impacts to the heart. Okay. Um, and then kind of stemming from that, obviously, if your heart's not working well, 
you're not going to be able to swim super well. And so we had, you know, people focused on swim performance and quantifying that. Um, and so my, my piece, I came in, um, and I got kind of interested in this idea of like chemical communication in fish and how, you know, how crude oil might impact some of those kind of really important, um, olfactory cues that fish pick up on. And so kind of the reasoning behind that was because, well, so first of all, like olfaction is kind of, it's not like necessarily the sexiest of the senses per se. Um, oh, like, I disagree. I, mean, okay. I think okay. we, I think we underestimate how much we pay attention and, and how much our, our romantic lives are linked to smell, but that's, that's yeah. another podcast. Um, so, so maybe it's not sexy in the sense of like people think of it as a sexy research question, but if you're going to have sex, smell is definitely involved. Definitely. I think, I think there was some, like, you know, some study that basically showed that like teenagers would rather give up their cell phones um, or sorry, would rather give up their sense of smell than their cell phones. But like, I think with actually with COVID, we've learned like when people who have lost their sense of smell, there's a little bit more attention now to like how important it really is. That's right. And Um, I had no idea that fish even can smell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so smell is super important for fish. Um, and it also happens to be, you know, for all organisms, I believe maybe I shouldn't say all, we can never really say all in science because there's always some weirdo out there, but, um, (laughs) your sense of smell, those neurons are the, for many, for many organisms, the only neurons that are directly exposed to the environment. So for a fish, they're swimming along and whatever is in the water is going directly over those neurons. And so that allows them, you know, when there's cues in the water, like say for prey fish or a predator or a pollution, you know, event, they're able to kind of detect those olfactory cues really rapidly. But it also means that if there is something, you know, like a pollutant in the water, like crude oil or, you know, anything else for that matter, um, those toxicants in the water are also going to encounter those neurons directly without any kind of filter. So, you know, I kind of hypothesized that sense of smell could actually be one of those impacts that's sort of perhaps not obvious if you're just looking at say like X many fish died, um, and X many fish didn't. Um, but things like damaged sense of smell might be kind of one of this, you know, sort of more subtle impacts. And so I decided to look into that with some um, laboratory-based experiments in both um, juvenile mahi-mahi and bicolored damselfish. Okay. And and what kind of things, like, so what does a fish use smell for other than predator-prey? Do they use it for like finding mates? Do they use it for like, I, I think mahi-mahi are a migratory fish. Is that? Yes. So, and do they migrate, migrate alone or do they migrate with friends? Like, how They're they- often in a school, um, okay. but not always. I mean, you know, it kind of depends. Um, and so we don't know for this for sure, but we, we suspect that the, you know, a lot of the kind of migratory cues might be olfactory. Um, so mahi mahi are sort of known to, um, they will eat until they make themselves sick. They like, they're just, because that's part of their physiology where they're just like, you know, I need, like, I am growing fast. I am getting ready to reproduce. I am reproducing frequently. And then I'm probably dying before too long. So it's like, you know, they eat an enormous amount. Um, so I would, you know, I would, make an educated guess that a lot of their migratory behavior, I know that a lot of it's based on temperature from my work tagging them. Um, but that it's also probably based on, you know, kind of smelling their way to different areas where there might be prey fish because in the open ocean, there's not like often we call it kind of like almost a desert where there's just these sort of like patches where there's a lot of productivity, and there might be, you know, like a large number of prey fish, but then there's open ocean where there's just not a lot going on. So they migrate kind of between, between these big areas where they can catch food. 
Okay. Now I have a bit of a stupid question. Um, cause I know with birds, when people tag birds, you know, birds are kind of always on the edge of death all the time. Like, you know, because flying is really expensive and I don't know, I kind of imagine swimming must be really expensive, but of course that, that fish have certain adaptations that just like birds that let them, you know, be more efficient in the way that they move in their particular environment. So I I don't know how big a mahi-mahi is and I don't know how big the tags are, but like, I know this is a big concern with birds because you got to make the tag weigh like very, very little so that, you know, and they put like little backpacks on birds and I'm always just like, oh my gosh, you know, they're like sending them to school with a backpack. And, and so how does, how does tagging them affect how they move if at all? Yeah. So we're really fortunate for this work. Um, I mean, so all the laboratory work that I did with Mahi Mahi was sort of structured around the University of Miami has an experimental hatchery where they're able to um, have Mahi Mahi that are, you know, we would catch them out in the wild, bring them in, they would reproduce in captivity and they could raise up, like they say, complete the life cycle, which basically just means you have spawning adults Um, you know, you produce embryos and larvae, juveniles, and you can grow those juveniles up to again, sexual reproduction. So you can basically have, you know, for our laboratory studies, we could working with, with the, you know, folks at the hatchery, we could basically work on any life life stage of mahi mahi from, you know, working with the embryos to juveniles to, to up to adults. So this meant basically, you know, we have the facilities to keep mahi mahi in captivity. And so we did several experiments where we brought in wild fish um, that we would catch, you know, off the coast of Miami, bring them into the hatchery, put them in tanks and we would tag them. Um, And for a couple of different reasons, there were, um, there was one study that I did where I basically wanted to see whether I could use um, these tags now have accelerometers that you can put into them. And that can provide just a huge amount of information on kind of like subtle behavioral, you know, just very subtle changes in behavior and energetics, that kind of thing. So uh, I wanted to see whether we could pick up on kind of like a signature spawning behavior with that acceleration data so that we could then predict spawning in wild fish that were tagged. And so we did two big experiments where I tagged fish in captivity um, and then basically waited until they spawned, which in captivity at the right temperature, when they're getting fed twice a day, the males can spawn every single day and the females can spawn every other day. Okay. Wow. Um, That's pretty, so I would, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a huge energetic investment and, you know, part of why they're not, you know, they don't live to be much right. older one. They're just like, they're going all out, um, right away. They go hard. So, yeah, so I did this experiment where we tagged them in captivity. I had cameras set up and then also I would show up to the hatchery at about midnight and sit there waiting until they spawned so that I could get like the exact time that the spawning happened and kind of pair that with the acceleration data to build these predictive spawning models. Um, So we had this really nice data set of kind of like, okay, we've been observing these fish with the tags. We're seeing like about how long you know, it takes them to kind of like recover from the stress because it is, you know, it is stressful and we do everything we can to kind of reduce that, but it's still handling. It's still inserting this, you know, dart into their muscle. Um, it's still this, you know, object kind of floating along behind them. And so a graduate student, so we had that data and then a graduate student, um, CJ McGuigan, who is at the time a master's student took some of that data and, and his own data in a couple of different experiments and really kind of quantitatively looked at it. And we found um, that for the tagged mahi-mahi, there wasn't really any difference in their movements when they were um, kind of free swimming in the tank. So like if they're, he's tossing, you know, food into the tank and he's seeing that there's no difference between a tagged fresh fish or an untagged fish, who's, who's the first to get the food and kind of analyzing the speed that they're swimming and they're, how frequently they're turning and all kinds of stuff like that. He didn't see any differences. So, okay. That's great. Yeah. We figured from that, like, okay, we can trust, we can trust this data from the wild fish. Great. Yeah. Because that's always a concern. I mean, I painted prairie dogs and, you know, everybody's like, well, doesn't that mean they get eaten? And, you know, um, 
and I didn't, I didn't notice any great difference in who got it. I mean, most of them were all painted. So, yeah, you know, if like, you can't you need a control of unpainted prairie dogs and painted prairie dogs, and then, you know, do some kind of comparison. I mean, we do know with birds, like banding them has some effects on their um, competition with each other, not necessarily being eaten. I don't know why male birds with red bands do better with the ladies. I have no idea what's going on there, but we know that there are sort of consequences for, for some species. Um, well, I don't, I know you're busy, but so I don't want to stop though, until we, we get to your current research and some of your sure. current research and, and, and also about where you are uh, today, but, but some of your current work in North Carolina was looking at shrimp and how, they're changing their movements in response to the environment. And instead of sort of oil spills, now it's maybe climate change or other environmental variables. And I guess, could you, could you talk a little bit about the shrimp that you're looking at and what kind of variables are, are you seeing impact them? Yeah, so I have been working on white, pink, and brown shrimp in North Carolina. So shrimp are the most popular seafood in the United States. Um, you know, in America, we eat a ton of shrimp. I think it's like five, I want to say, I looked this up recently, five pounds per um, person per year, maybe. I should probably double check that before. Wow. Well, I'm that. glad I'm, I'm, I'm giving back five pounds of shrimp because yeah. I don't I don't eat, I don't, I don't eat shrimp. So, so they can go back to wherever they need to be. <laughs> yeah. So we, yeah. We eat a ton of shrimp and it's really, you know, economically very important for a lot of the States where there's big commercial fishing fleets. So for North Carolina um, in particular, shrimp are one of the top two, usually in terms of each year, um, the value brought in for the state from the fishery. So uh, there's a big kind of cultural economic historical kind of, you know, that whole fisheries story, um, with, with shrimp. Uh, but we also know that the, the abundance of these different species, like it varies a huge amount each year. So it'll be, you know, one year you'll have like gangbuster year for brown shrimp and the next year, almost none. Um, so the thinking has been that they probably, they have similar to Mahi Mahi, actually, they have just about a year life cycle, um, and it's fairly complex that the adults are reproducing in the ocean, the larval shrimp um, recruit into estuaries, and um, in particular, Pamlico Sound is one of the most productive shrimp habitats in North Carolina, um, where my data is all from. And these shrimp, like as they grow, they go into the deeper waters and eventually they go offshore to reproduce themselves. Um, but because they have to kind of complete all those steps and kind of moving from open ocean to um, tidal creeks to Pamlico Sound to back to the ocean just in a year, the environment has a big effect on kind of how successful they are. Um, and so, but my research has, has done is really used like this. We have this amazing 30 year plus data set of, of um, a survey in North Carolina run by the Division of Marine Fisheries in North Carolina. And so this is all, um, you know, it's not landings data, it's a scientific survey where they they randomize throughout Pamlico Sound, do these 20-minute standardized trawls. Um, so we have 30 years of that data. And so I use that along with a lot of different environmental data, things like winter temperatures, um, wind speed and direction during the period that the shrimp are reproducing and the juvenile shrimp are trying to get into, into estuaries, um, rainfall data, um, what else? <laughs> Lots of things like the NAO index, the North Atlantic Oscillation Index, um, all kinds of different factors and trying to see like, okay, what's really important? What, what factors go into a really good shrimp year or a really bad shrimp year? And kind of across the board, I found that temperature and salinity have a huge impact as well as wind. So for, for these juvenile shrimp that are trying to kind of make their way from the spawning grounds into Pamlico Sound, really how strong the wind is blowing and in what direction it's blowing has a big impact on how successful they are at basically what we call recruiting, like getting, getting into Pamlico Sound. So, um, yeah, my, basically my results are just that these, 
these shrimp are all highly dependent on environmental conditions. And so we know that kind of as climate continues to change, we're expecting really to see that these populations are going to continue to shift. So currently we're sort of a few years behind actually observing like this big shift in the white shrimp population where you know, they haven't historically been very abundant in North Carolina. And in the last 10 years or so, white shrimp have become much more abundant in North Carolina. And particularly, it's noticeable actually further north. So we're seeing Virginia actually catching more white shrimp than than they ever have. And they've, um, in response to that, actually set up a fishery for the first time. So this is actually like creating a fishery where there wasn't one before because of this species moving north in response to warming winter temperatures. And so my data really show that where there's a really tight correlation between how many spawning white shrimp there are off the coast of North Carolina and how warm the winter is. So the warmer the winter, the more spawning white shrimp we have. And that for North Carolina means more white shrimp the following year. So um, that's kind of a clear climate change story where we expect, you know, potentially these white shrimp will continue moving north as, as temperatures warm. Yeah. Well, and, and because all kinds of organisms, not just people are sensitive to temperature and really, I think I could be wrong, but in the marine environment, it feels like the, the spread of temperature tolerance is a little bit narrower, um, for those organisms. Yeah. And I think it it really depends on the species. Like, so, you know, for Mahi Mahi with my tagging data actually showed that they have this super narrow temperature range. And so there's the potential also for them to be impacted by climate change, but because they're so highly migratory, we often don't really think of, you know, for shrimp, we say, we know they have to come to this, you know, they have to come to some estuary. It doesn't have to be this one, but they have very specific habitat requirements at different stages. And it's closer to the coast. So I think it's easier for us as humans to say, like, we observe these shrimp are coming in earlier or they're moving north. And we can see that with our own eyes. Like we can go out, people with their own dock can like go out and say, I can catch shrimp off my dock when I never could 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, With Mahi Mahi, it's like we don't see that because we know that they're highly migratory and they're out there. But yeah, the tagging data that I have actually showed that they really, they use depth um, really precisely as a way to kind of control their temperature. So if it's really hot at the surface, they go a little deeper um, and vice versa. And they're, you know, how far North or South they are in their migrations is, is really based on temperature as well as, yeah, a few other things. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, all of your work and all of your journey has been incredible. And I want to close with just where are you now and how is that tied to where you started? Yeah. So current, currently, um, I am sitting in Connecticut, um, in my, in my little house here. Um, and I'm teaching at, um, the Williams mystic program as a visiting assistant professor. So if anyone happens to recall where we started from, this is like where I, as a, when I was a junior in college had my kind of light bulb moment where I was, um, you know, this is what I want to do. And so about 15 years later, more or less, um, I am back teaching marine ecology in the same program that really inspired me to follow this path. And we have a great group of students this semester. So that's really fun. It's, it's interesting for me to be back and think about my memories of being here and my experiences and now really being on the other side as like a professor and helping to run the program. But I, I did just get back from an offshore sail with the students where we were for about eight or nine days um, sailing on a tall ship around St. Croix in the Caribbean. Um, we'll go to California with them. We'll go to Maine. And then the majority of the semester will be here in, in the Mystic Seaport, kind of just really trying to do hands-on, for me, marine science and you know the other courses as well, kind of doing hands-on history of the sea and literature, et cetera, because we're in, we're in this really special place that is kind of like a living museum. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a fun opportunity um, for the semester. And then yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens after that. Maybe, maybe back to North Carolina to do more stuff with the shrimp or, or maybe elsewhere. 
Well, I hope your students get to listen to this so that they can hear, you know, also that journeys don't have to be linear. Um, And we, we, and also you don't have to be so specialized that getting breadth of experience and range of experience. In fact, most specialist species go extinct. So, you know, um, you know, having the ability to have such diverse experiences and share that with them. Um, I, I think, you know, I hope they feel as inspired as I do. So thank you so much for being on the show and for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, it was really, really fun to chat this morning. All right, everyone, that is the show. Thank you so much for listening. And before I forget, I just want to ask if you're enjoying the show, please go ahead and drop us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. You can check out the show notes on my website, jenniferbertolin.com, or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. Next time, we're going to have more on women and history in the science fields and hear from another incredible woman scientist. This time, a very good friend of mine and very special person to meet.